So in this Advent season, we're going to be joining together the, the notion of Advent, of presence, of coming, together with the four words of Advent, hope, joy, peace, and love, and also with Eucharist. And so Mike McNichols and I, over these four weeks, will be doing a, a series on Eucharist. And so bringing these things all together um, means at least one thing to me, and that is that I'm in a bit over my head. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been thinking about this for, uh, and practicing Eucharist every week uh, for six years now. And I've always had this hunch that there's way more going on and way more to understand than I have personally understood. And I certainly cannot say that I've arrived. Um, but I can say that I'll do my best to say some spiritually nurturing <laughs> Um, things as we work our way through this. Maybe what we could agree to is over these next four weeks that uh, between Mike and I and all of us, we can learn together. How about that? And see if we can plumb a little bit the depths of Eucharist. Tom Wright, who's been, a, uh, been in sort of an Anglican um, theologian, mentored to me through his writings. I don't know him much personally. Um, has said of the sacraments that it's hard to put the sacraments into language. He says that they're untranslatable and that this is true because they are themselves their own language. And as I've tried to think this through, the, the closest parallel I've been able to come up with so far is I remember being a teenager, 19 years old, recently converted at, you know, uh, Calvary Chapel, Riverside, you know, now Harvest, and reading the Bible the f for the first time and realizing there is something different about this text. This is like not a normal text. Um, now, nobody had ever taught me yet about Hebrews, you know, that the, the book of Hebrews, that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword and able to penetrate to the deepest hearts of a human person. But look at me, I experienced it. I hadn't read that passage. I don't know how long it was till I read that. Some months, some years later, it was explained to me what happened to me through a passage of Scripture. And this is how Eucharist comes to us. I mean, it doesn't take much thought. As soon as I say it, you'll go, oh, yeah. They were practicing Eucharist. The early church, the first followers of Jesus, were practicing Eucharist way before it was written about in the New Testament perhaps a generation. And certainly it was a long time after that before theologians were theorizing about how it is that Christ is actually present with us at Eucharist. And this is the way spiritual formation works. We often experience our way into something before it's in any way adequately explained to us. So if you can hang on to that notion at least, I mean, that works for me, I'm not sure it works for all of you, but if you could hang on to a notion, something like that first moment when you realize the word of God is alive and powerful, that this isn't me controlling a text with my understanding. Now, our understanding obviously comes into play when we're reading Holy Scripture, I get it. But this isn't merely me through my own cognition drawing something out of this text. This text speaks. It's active. It's alive. It's powerful. It's doing something to me so that I am object. 
Something's happening to me. I'm the recipient of some action. And this is what's going on in the Eucharist. Again, not merely, but it can't say everything in one day. That in Eucharist, we're feeding on a reality, even though we might find it difficult to conceptualize what sort of reality it is or to have some sort of suitable theology or theory about what's going on. And my heart for this series is that we would come to see as a people that we experience weekly or have the potential to experience weekly, if we intend it, Advent. That Advent is, of course, you know, historically speaking, this long history of yearning, of expectation for the hope of a coming, and then Jesus comes, and so there's revelation, there's appearing, there's presence. But what the church has thought since Jesus' first friends is that he would be with us at this table, and that this table is our opportunity for a weekly yes, for reception. So something's given, and we receive. And tying that together to our word this week, hope, is the idea would be that as we come weekly expecting that we would receive hope. The word Eucharist, I'm sure most of you know, translates a Greek word for thanksgiving. And one of the reasons the church has been so thankful to God is hope. Hope is a core reason for giving thanks. As the psalmist helps us see the goodness of God manifested in creation and his faithfulness to his people. If you look at your psalm text, you'll see these words. The eyes of the Lord are on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. So hope is our theme, our Advent theme this week. And so let's say a couple things about hope. What is hope? Well, first of all, biblical hope is not a hope so. It's not wishful thinking. It's not if you hate the patriots hoping Denver wins today, right? That's, that's not hope. Or if you're a part of Patriot Nation, you hope the Patriots win today. You know, whichever way that goes, that kind of hope we feel about stuff like sports or the stock market or whatever, this is not that. This is not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is more of a no-so. Not a hope-so, but a no-so. Well, what's the no? Well, for instance, in, in Paul's letters, he says several times, we hope in the living God. So it's the knowledge of a living God who's superintending human history that when things seem completely out of control, believers in that living God, those who are connected to him, still maintain hope. And this is why hope's important. Um, biblical hope is akin to a really deep confidence. And it, it's that confidence that provides a secure anchor for the soul. Well, this then raises the question, well, then what's the basis for that kind of hope? And again, the psalmist says to us, find these words in Psalm 33, the Lord is right and true, faithful in all he does. The earth is full of his unfailing love. That is the basis for hope. Now, occasionally we have what you might call secular reasons for hope. Maybe somebody gets elected to you know, office that somebody you like, and so you feel a little hope or the stock market turns around, or your favorite sports team wins the Super Bowl, or something. But those things come and go. They're not the basis for hope. 
The basis for hope is the earth is full of God's unfailing love. And so then it lastly raises the question, well, how does someone get this kind of hope? And again, it comes out of a no-so. So in the same way that in a, in, in a moment, I'm going to instruct you about your intentionality about this table and how weakly this table and its elements can feed you, this is the way that one comes to hope. One comes to hope through confidence that is an experienced reality. You little by little find God caring for you. And over a lifetime, you can mark that. And every week, we stand at the doxology after giving our offerings. And we pause, just five, 10 seconds, we pause. And we remember one time during the week where we felt God's provision and we sing. Why? Because little by little, that shapes your soul into a confidence. So when the big things happen in life, you're diagnosed with cancer. You find out your kid's pregnant out of wedlock. One of your kids is on drugs. Things are shaky at work. You have those little moment-by-moment things that has shaped a soul that says, I can stand even here in confidence. Even here, I can stand. For my hope is in the living God who fills the earth with his unfailing love. If we look at your passage in Romans 5, thinking as we are here that life can be a series of challenges, at least it can seem like, I don't know about you, but my life often seems like it, it is merely a series of challenges. Of course, it's not, but right, it can often seem like that, that life just sort of gets reduced to these, you know, challenges that seem to be never-ending. And so look at your passage, what Paul says, that this suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance shapes your character. And character, once it's shaped around this notion of persevering because the Lord is filling the earth with un, his unfailing love, this produces hope. Now, I don't normally read the Living Bible, no, no offense to Mr. Taylor. Um, I just haven't read it in years, but, but what Taylor does here with Romans 5, I think is great. Listen to this. Through hope, we're able to hold our heads high no matter what happens and know that all is well. For we know how dearly God loves us, and we feel this warm love everywhere within us because God has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. That's, that's the biblical notion for how someone stands in hope. Now, as we pivot to our gospel reading and thinking about Eucharist during this Advent time, Eucharist to me raises a question. And again, I, I am not expert on these things. I have only got six years of experience in this. But so for whatever this is worth in my six years of experience of giving this, giving myself to liturgy week in and week out and giving myself to you and us doing this together week in and week out, <clears throat> here's a, well, at least one thing I think I can say fairly confidently. And that is that the liturgy, the liturgy is not magic. There's nothing magic in it. In a moment, we're going to kneel and confess our sins. And unless you intend to get right with God, it's meaningless words. 
our intention is fundamental to this object-subject thing that happens in the liturgy. It's a, both a giving and a receiving. Now, I don't mean to say, we have to be careful here, because I don't mean to say that you like have to, I don't want you sitting here and standing and kneeling here, like grunting your way through this, trying to make yourself super present to every little word. I don't mean that. But I do mean, because sometimes, sorry, sometimes you can be caught up in what the community's doing together and it counts. But in general, I mean, is there anything in life you can think of where going through the motions produces anything good? So it can't obviously just be a going through the motions. And so if we think of Eucharist, and as we think, and you know, in a minute, this center aisle will be full of people, all of you, us as a community, coming to this table. And I think it raises the question, as you come, what do you intend? What do you hope? What are you thinking as you come? And John 6 helps us see that this is important to Jesus. Paraphrasing here, Jesus knew that this crowd had seen him in action, but they didn't really believe him. And so then he says to them, I am the bread of life. That is to say, I am all your basic essential human needs. They are fulfilled in me. That's what bread is, basic essential core to human life. Jesus says, that is who I am to you. And whoever comes to me, so now think of yourself coming to this table where we say Jesus is present. Whoever comes to me, and the notion there, if you, you, can, you can hear this in opposition, Jesus is saying, you don't really believe me, you're sort of out here somewhere. But whoever comes to me, whoever aligns themselves to me and to what I'm teaching and doing, shall not hunger. That is to say that all of our rightly ordered desires will be fulfilled. Now you say, well, Todd, why do you say rightly ordered desires? Because we didn't read it, but just three or four verses above this, Jesus said to this same crowd, don't work for food that perishes. So there is a food that perishes that does not satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. But Jesus says, in opposition to that, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Next, he says, whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That is to say something like, I'm the well from which everybody who says they're spiritual but not religious ought to come to drink. And I don't mean this in a sarcastic way, but I want you to have this thought in your head. For all of your friends at work and relatives who say I'm spiritual but not religious, show me a way of being spiritual that is devoid of religion. There isn't one. Because as soon as you put thought to a spirituality, it's religious. As soon as you put any practices to it, it's religious. There is no such thing as being spiritual without being religious. Because as soon as you obey these words, come follow me, as soon as you hear and obey Jesus' invitation, no matter how much you hate church, not you, but think of our friends and family, no matter how much you might hate religion, 
As soon as you say, Jesus, I will student myself to you and you will become my master for living, that practice of studentness will mean you're reading and writing certain things, you're listening to a teacher, it will have the marks of religion. So the only choice is, from what well are you drinking? And Jesus says, whoever believes in me, that is to say, places their confidence in me and follows me, will never thirst. This then can become something like our intentionality as we walk down the aisle. Jesus, I want to feed on you, that my disordered desires would come into line. Jesus, I want my spiritual thirst to be quenched as we take of this cup. We might think of it, Eucharist, this is, uh, would be a very typical sort of continental or English Reformation way of thinking about this, is Eucharist, week in and week out as we come to it, walking down this aisle together, is something like covenant renewal. And you'll hear in a moment as Dennis prays the Eucharistic prayers that they rehearse salvation. And they help us to renew our vows and the notion has always been that, that in some mysterious way, we are specifically graced at this table. I mean, if, like if there's one sort of core thing to say maybe about the practice of Eucharist, is that there is some special presence, some special grace. And, and obviously, millions of books have been filled with explanations or millions of words filled with explanations of how this happens and what exactly is happening, but no one's ever doubted that there is some special grace that enables life in Christ. As I said, what if together we just agreed that we'll make this our weekly yes to Jesus? Our weekly yes, Lord. We hunger and thirst for you, and we come here to quench and fulfill that thirst and that hunger. So we come to Jesus as a source of our spiritual life. And for us, we always want to say in two dimensions. That for me, there's a formational aspect of Eucharist where if, if nothing else, if you want, if you, if you intend, if you want, you could walk down this aisle week in and week out to simply practice the presence of God. So that when someone at the grocery store is cussing you out because you accidentally got in line with them, you will have learned through your weekly practice to, to notice the presence of God even in that setting. And that as you come week in and week out practicing the presence of God, that you then can gain a confidence that comes from this hopeful and trusting interaction. But you know me, I always want to say that we're not merely on a journey inward, but we're also on a journey outward. And that there is then necessarily a missional aspect to this table. And I thought of it this week in this way. You remember the story in Luke 19, Jesus tells this parable of a, of a Lord uh, who is going off to receive his kingdom and is going to come back. And he calls to himself ten of his servants. He gives them a sum of money and says to them, uh, the, the uh, ESV has it, engage in business until I return. Uh, those of you who grew up here in Orange County in the Jesus movement will remember this from the King James occupy until I come, right? How many sermons did we hear on the second coming of Jesus? And occupy until I come. 
Well, that Greek word for occupy is kind of a pragmatic word. It just means take care of that which is necessary. And what was necessary in this case was what? Well, what did Jesus, why did he invest in them? Why did he give them these sums of money? And what is it that he left them to do? What does it mean to engage in business until he returns? What is this business? And the simple answer is, we're in the business of servants. We're servants. This is all over the Gospels, all over Paul. One of Paul's very favorite words is bond slave. It's everywhere in the New Testament. I mean, it's just, it's undoubted that the business we're in is serving Christ's purposes on the earth. So now I want you to think of the word engage. Engage in business until I come. And I want you to hear in the word engage an obvious motivation to action. Because you know the rest of this story and you know the parable of the talents. That those who didn't engage in the practice of taking care of necessary things, who didn't act on the investment of Christ in them, are not rewarded. And those who did are. So now, hear these typical Pauline phrases. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Right? That's all over Paul's letters. Or think of his um, explanation of how and why these happened, the context in which these good works happened. Think of Ephesians 2. These good works that God has prepared for you to do. Or think of Jesus in Mark 10 where he said of himself, I have not come to be served, but to serve. So now I need your full attention. Uh, Christian thinkers about this for a long, long time, and not least uh, the founder of our church, Thomas Cramner, have thought that something happens at this table where we are actually joined to Jesus. That that's a part of the deep mystery that's like way over my head. That we are sometime, somehow actually joined with Jesus, like I said, in some special engraced way. And that as Jesus offered himself to the Father, we, as we come, are both receiving and offering ourselves in Christ to the Father. Now, sorry for the podcast. So I don't know if you've noticed in the last six years, but I've stood here for six years, and every time we've prayed these words, and it's in the Eucharistic prayer, Dennis will read it to us in a moment, send your blessing upon us. And every week for six years, I have done this. Send your blessing upon us. Not just these elements that will be consecrated, but consecrate us. Lift us up into your Son. And as your Son expressed your purposes on the earth, lift us up into your purposes. Some people might cross themselves. That's okay with me. But if you want to join me from now on, as I say those words, send your Holy Spirit on us and this sacrifice that somehow through this we would be caught up into God and into his purposes on the earth.
Now, I want to say a word again to us in this room. Um, Debbie and I went through a period of, I lose track of time, but five, six, seven years where we were pretty thoroughly de-churched. I mean, we were always connected, and I was always working in the ministry. And, but, you know, we were going through that time of kind of deconstructing church and what it meant, and it didn't seem to be working, and blah, blah, blah. And I just want to say to us and to our friends and family who are in this places, these places as we're trying to help people, that I think it's very important that we don't overreact. Because we are called to occupy until he comes. And occupy or engage in is an action-oriented word. So non-anxious about it, of course. Not having to control outcomes, of course. No hype, no manipulation, of course. But we still, in my point of view, have to be biblical. And to be biblical means we are, by definition, servants serving the purposes of God through loving, self-sacrificial care for others. I mean, that is the, the golden thread that runs all through the New Testament. That is who we are, and we can't avoid it. It's our place in the world. It's our place in the whole cosmos and the world to come. And we're nourished to do this at this table. So I don't know exactly where Mike's going to go with, with his two weeks, but I know that there is a little burden on these four weeks to ex kind of explain bits of Eucharist, yes. But even more so, what I want is to help us more deeply experience it for our own life to be enriched and our life for the world to be enriched as well. So I want to end by giving you a bit of a vision for this. So again, bringing together um, Advent and Eucharist and our Advent um, candle theme for this morning, hope, I want you to think something like this. That through the gift of hope, so through the gift of hope, as Jesus hosts us at his table, that God is creating for himself a generous, hospitable people. And I want to suggest to you a vision for this that comes from a part of a poem by Jan Richardson. So you may want to close your eyes here. Just do whatever you need to do to hear these words with some intentionality. At the table, the welcome will be wide. And the arms will open wide to gather us in. And our hearts will be open wide to receive. And our aching will be met with bread. And our sorrow will be met with wine. And we will open our hands to the feast without shame. And we'll turn to each other without fear. And we will give up our appetite for despair. And we will taste and know of delight. And we will become bread for a hungering world. And we will become drink for those who thirst. And the blessed will become the blessing, and everywhere will be the feast. And I would add, even so, come Lord Jesus, let there be the feast everywhere. As your head as are bowed this morning, and we come to our quiet moment, you might want to just ask yourself, 
How might my intention concerning Eucharist be clarified or deepened this morning? How might my intention concerning Eucharist be clarified or deepened this morning? Or maybe you sit here today with an anxiety that's rooted in your extended family or your work or something. And maybe you can hear in Jesus the invitation to notice your spiritual hunger or thirst, a place where you need hope to banish anxiety. And as you notice that, maybe you can bring it with you to the table this morning.